If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then maybe you'd enjoy membership with the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. As a member of the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh, you'll have access to the RCPE education portal and access to the evening medical updates and options to view the symposia in person or online. If you would like to learn more about this, then please go on to the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh website for more information. Thank you. Hello everybody and welcome to Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr Hannah Preston and I am delighted to have Professor James Deere with me today to discuss paracetamol overdoses in the acute medical unit, the role of NAC and specifically the new SNAP regime. Professor Deer began his medical training at University College London and has completed a PhD in pharmacology before finishing his clinical training at Oxford University. After junior medical jobs in both Oxford and London, Professor Deer spent two years as a research fellow in the USA. In 2012, Prof Deer was awarded an NHS Research Scotland Career Research Fellowship and in 2016, he won the British Pharmacological Society Graham Smith Prize for Research. He currently manages his time between research at the Edinburgh University and toxicology at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. We are very grateful to have him here with us today. So thank you and welcome. Thank you, Hannah. Delighted to come and talk today. So in this podcast, I thought we could cover the basis of paracetamol overdose and the features to look out for, when to worry, the role of NAC, and then this new implementation of the SNAP regime, which you have been involved with. So how common is a paracetamol overdose in the acute medical take? Well, I think most of the listeners will know that it's a very common presentation. To give it some numbers, there are around 100,000 paracetamol overdoses who present to the emergency departments in the UK every year. Of those, around half, so around 50,000, are admitted to hospital, mostly for treatment of paracetamol overdose. To put those numbers in context, that's about the same number as people who have COPD who are admitted or people who are admitted with acute pancreatitis. So it is one of the most common reasons for a patient to be admitted to an acute medical unit, and it's something that occurs in every hospital. It's not a specialist disease, but it occurs, I would guess, in every A&E on a weekly, if not daily, basis. So our junior doctors listening and doctors in training are going to come across this pretty frequently over the course of their training. And am I right in thinking that it's one of the most common causes of acute liver failure and potentially requiring transplantation? Yeah, it's the commonest cause of acute liver failure by quite some way. And that's the end point that we want to avoid. And that's the end point that we all fear. So to put again some numbers on it, around 10% of people who take a paracetamol overdose will develop some abnormality of their liver function test. The classic and most important one being an elevation in their ALT or alanine transaminase. Now of that 10%, only a small number go on to develop liver failure. It's probably somewhere around one in a thousand patients. But the patients who develop liver failure require critical care, can require, as you say, a transplant and have a high mortality. So it's a serious condition that we want to prevent after paracetamol overdose. And other than liver failure and liver problems, are there any other problems that it can arise to? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other, the other organ that less commonly affected but still can be is the kidney. 
the kidney can be affected and you can develop acute kidney injury either in the context of acute liver failure or actually without acute liver failure. You can get direct acute tubular necrosis due to the paracetamol. It's less common than liver injury, but it is well recognised. And with the paracetamol overdose, are there any particular groups of people that our listeners should really look out for and worry if they have taken an overdose? Are there any vulnerable populations? Yeah, there are risk factors for developing liver failure and they would be chronic alcohol consumption, malnutrition and the prescription, the co not so much co-ingestion of the overdose, but a chronic prescription of certain enzyme-inducing drugs. And maybe at this stage, it's worth just going over briefly how paracetamol injures the liver. Absolutely. So paracetamol at a normal dose, so one gram, in the liver is predominantly excreted by what's called conjugation. So the liver sticks certain molecules onto the paracetamol, makes it water-soluble, and it's passed out in the urine and bile. There is a small amount of the paracetamol, even in a standard dose, that is metabolized by what are called the P450 enzymes to produce a toxic metabolite. However, in overdose, the safe pathways become saturated and this P450 pathway takes over. So you get a production of a metabolite of paracetamol that causes the problems. And this toxic metabolite, known as NAPQI, binds to proteins within the liver and causes patocyte to be injured and in severe cases can cause acute liver failure. Now that NAPQI is naturally mopped up by glutathione in the cells. So anything that depletes glutathione will make you more at risk and malnutrition depletes the glutathione. Anything that increases the activity of the P450 enzymes will make you more at risk and that's certain enzyme inducing drugs. Uh, Now, we'll come on to treatments in a moment, but at this point, it's worth saying that the the only treatment we have, NAC or acetylcysteine, replenishes glutathione, so mops up the toxic metabolite. So for for the listeners, I think the message there is that it's not the paracetamol itself that's toxic, it's a metabolite, and the amount of the metabolite you make will determine whether you're more risk or not. Fantastic. And going on to the NAC, the N-acetylcysteine, protocol is probably one that many junior doctors, registrars, consultants come across on a reasonably regular basis with quite a lot of paperwork. You've said that obviously the N-acetylcysteine helps increase the glutathione levels. How quickly do you need to give NAC for it to work? Yeah, that's a great question, Hannah. So in addition to the risk factors we just spoke about, the biggest risk factor for a patient doing badly is a delay between them taking the overdose and starting acetylcysteine. So if you start the NAC within around eight hours of the overdose, the person's going to do fine. They never come to any problems. However, if there's a delay, then the risk of getting liver injury goes up substantially. So patients, for the listeners to particularly watch out for are people who are presented to hospital late after the overdose and therefore start treatment late after the overdose because they have a substantially higher risk of liver injury. And I guess these patients are often trickier as well because we may not necessarily really gauge a 
full correct amount of what exactly they've taken and therefore we've got these different protocols haven't we depending on whether you have an acute ingestion or a staggered ingestion as well yeah that's right so just to clarify some of the terms so an acute ingestion is essentially taking all the tablets at once for the point of being practical we say within one hour but what we're talking about is somebody who's taken all their tablets at once now if you take your tablets all at once then we can use the nomogram which i'm sure that the people listening to this are familiar with but if they're not what that is is ask the patient how long ago they took the overdose and plot that in hours on the x-axis on the y-axis you have the paracetamol concentration in the blood and if you're over a line you start treatment so an acute overdose you use a nomogram based on how long ago it was they took the overdose and what the blood paracetamol concentration is a staggered overdose is where the patient's taken multiple overdoses over greater than around one hour and in that setting you can't use the line because you haven't just got one ingestion you've got multiple ones and that setting's trickier and you have to use the amount of paracetamol that the person says they've taken as the main guide to whether they need treatment or not and so yes you're quite right they're staggered and there's acute overdoses and they have different pathways of treatment the main difference being the use of the nomogram wonderful and we'll come on to the snap regime shortly but that was built around a basis of knack is not without its side effects not only is it you know multiple bags for long periods of time which bring patients to a medical bed if they want to disconnect to try and go off to the ward go to the toilet etc etc which can delay or extend their treatment but the side effects especially what are they yeah so the classic regimen for giving acetylcysteine was a 21 hour regimen of three different bags of acetylcysteine that gave a total of 300 milligrams per kilogram of body weight now it's very interesting looking back hannah at how that was developed And it really wasn't developed with a great deal of sort of dose-finding experiments. It was very much more that here was a dose that was found to work in the sense of preventing liver damage. And then it it got stuck with, and we've used it since the 1970s, almost without change until recently. So it's 21 hours is the classic regimen that certainly more senior people listening to the podcast will be very familiar with. The problems with that regimen, as you say, are firstly side effects are common particularly what are called anaphylactoid reactions so these are allergic like reactions where patients feel sick they may vomit they can have itching they can have a bit of wheeze they go red an allergic like reaction and it, and even without the allergic reaction nausea and vomiting are very common and actually some studies have shown up to one in three people on the 21 hour regimen have these allergic reactions The two other problems with the 21-hour regimen are that it's 21 hours long. And actually, there isn't, until recently, a great deal of evidence you need to give it for 21 hours. But obviously, 21 hours means the patient's coming into hospital for Mm -hmm. at least a day. And the third problem is one we've talked about already. If you don't start the acetylcysteine within eight hours of a single overdose, then its effectiveness falls off quite rapidly, i.e. you're more likely to get liver injury. So they're the three problems that are are there with the 21-hour regimen. So that brings us on quite nicely to what developments have there been in order to potentially reduce that time, reduce side effects, and I guess take things forward. Yeah, absolutely. So that brings us on to the development of the so-called SNAP regimen. 
So around 10 or so years ago now, colleagues in Edinburgh and in Newcastle came together to devise a new regimen for acetocysteine. So the new regimen is called the SNAP regimen. And the differences with the 21-hour regimen are, firstly, it's only 12 hours long, so half the length, which is obviously going to reduce patient admissions. The second point of it is it gives the acetocysteine at a more constant rate. So the old regimen gives loads of acetocysteine and then gives a very slow drip. That loads of acetylcysteine is when you get the side effects, when your concentration in your blood goes very high. The SNAP regimen gives it more constantly, but it still gives the same total dose. It still gives 300 milligrams per kilogram, but gives it more constantly over the 12 hours. So that regimen was designed to have fewer side effects because it doesn't give this massive dose and to be shorter. So it started with a randomized controlled trial, the SNAP trial, and that compared patients randomized to 21-hour regimen or the SNAP regimen, and its primary endpoint was side effects. And what that randomized trial showed was that SNAP dramatically reduced the rate of anaphylactoid reactions and nausea and vomiting. It went down from around one in three people down to only about 2% in SNAP. So it's much better tolerated. And also, obviously, it's shorter. What the SNAP trial wasn't powered to do was to show that it's as effective at preventing liver damage, which is why we're giving it. So the SNAP regimen was introduced into three hospitals in the UK, in Edinburgh, London, and Newcastle. And data was collected, and we looked at the rate of liver damage before and after. And in essence, what we found is there's no difference in the effectiveness of the SNAP regimen in terms of preventing liver damage, which is what you would expect. After all, it's the same dose of NAC, and actually it's been given quicker over 12 hours rather than 21 hours. So the SNAP regimen now is recommended on Toxbase. It's actually recommended by the Royal College of Emergency Medicine as the default regimen for treatment in the UK. In Scotland, I think in mainland Scotland, every board uses SNAP as first line. And in the rest of the UK, I think the majority of hospitals have changed or are changing to using SNAP. So SNAP is shorter, it has far fewer side effects, and it is, as far as we can tell, just as effective. So that's a, a win for the treatment. One thing that the listeners might wonder is, well, why do I care about side effects? At the end of the day, they're not life-threatening. And that's true. But what the side effects do is they mean that treatment's interrupted. It means that patients are reluctant to have treatment and doctors are reluctant to give treatment. And when we think that the liver failure, the outcome we're trying to prevent is so serious, that can lead to problems. So SNAP is a regimen that seems the default in the UK now, and it is starting to be used abroad as well. So with these side effects, should we be prophylactically prescribing antiemetics? And what should we be doing for these anaphylactoid reactions, which are going to be less common, but when we see them, what should we be doing? Yep, absolutely. So I wouldn't say we would prophylactically prescribe antiemetics or antihistamines. The only caveat to that is if a patient's known to have had many reactions in the past, it wouldn't be unreasonable. The reactions are less common, but they still occur. When they do, the key things are to temporarily stop the knack, Treat with antihistamines. You may potentially also give an antiemetic if vomiting's a big feature, but antihistamines, and then restart the NAC. With the SNAP regimen, you can usually just restart it at the same rate, but you may want to restart it half as fast, so over twice as long. Key messages there are with antihistamines and stopping the treatment temporarily, most patients can restart safely. However, patients should restart. 
because it's not a true allergic reaction in the sense that you don't get a worse effect the next time you have it as compared to, say, being truly allergic to, say, penicillin. It's anaphylactoid, which means you don't get a worsening. And patients need astocysteine to prevent liver damage. So a patient who has a history of an allergic-type reaction to NAC should get NAC next time they come in. It is not contraindicated. And in those patients with those known reactions, it may be reasonable to give them an antihistamine before you start. And in patients who get a reaction, usually stopping the treatment, giving an antihistamine, restarting, possibly restarting at a slower rate is usually more than enough for them to be able to tolerate the infusion. Wonderful. That's really helpful. And I guess maybe just a few more final questions. When should we get worried and when should we be calling GI or when should we be thinking about a referral to critical care if things are not heading in the right direction as we would have hoped? Yeah, absolutely. Good question. So at the end of astocysteine treatment, we take blood again. The key thing you're looking for early on is the ALT. So ALT is alanine transaminase. It's released from hepatocytes when they are injured. And if the ALT goes up, that tells you some hepatocytes have been injured and therefore you would carry on the acetylcysteine. And conversely, if your ALT is plumb normal at the end of treatment and your paracetamol is all gone, you can stop treatment so the person can go home. Now, once the person has a rise in their ALT, the key things that predict those patients who are going to run into trouble and be at real risk of liver failure are predominantly firstly the INR. So the INR is a measure of liver synthetic function in this context and a rising INR is a signal of problems. Second thing that you should look out for is the development of encephalopathy. So is the patient becoming drowsy? Do they have a flap? The third thing that's key predictor is renal function. If a person's renal function goes off in the context of liver injury, that puts them at much higher risk of death. And the final thing is an acidosis. So it's useful to measure their lactate. Oh, and also hypoglycemia. Again, liver produces glucose. Hypoglycemia in this context is, is like a liver function test as well. So those are the markers that come together to form predictive scores such as the King's College criteria, which is used to predict need for transplantation in very sick people. In terms of the management here, I think a patient whose INR is going up rapidly and going up above two really warrants discussion with the local gastroenterologist who may in turn want to discuss with a liver transplant unit. So rapidly rising INR, certainly the development of encephalopathy and certainly the development of acidosis would also be signs to worry about. Now, unfortunately, there isn't any other treatment apart from acetylcysteine before you get to liver transplantation. The patient may well need critical care. The very sick people may need critical care, may need transplant to a liver transplant unit, but there isn't another treatment. And an area of active research is to develop new drugs because once you've had acetylcysteine, the only treatment is to carry on the acetylcysteine. There isn't another drug to add in to reverse the injury once it's established. Oh, that's... Very interesting. And do you think that research is in the future potentially going to produce something? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're starting two clinical trials led from Edinburgh uh, in the next months to years of two different therapies with the exact target of being an addition to NAC in high risk patients, either patients who present late 
So as we've said a few times, if you turn up to hospital greater than eight hours after the overdose, you are more likely to get liver damage. So that would be a group where you could add a new treatment. And also people with established liver damage, so whose ALT, say, is greater than 1,000, um, to add in something to reverse the damage, to try to prevent people going on to developing liver failure and needing a transplant or dying. And a final thing, just to touch on, I said a final thing, but a final thing in, in terms of therapeutics would be that at the moment we give everybody the same dose of acetocysteine, 300 milligrams per kilogram in total. So the only thing we base it on is their body weight. Now, in truth, that can't be right because some people have very high paracetamol levels, some people are very low. And so there's this trial we're starting looking at different doses of acetylcysteine, asking the question, should we give more acetylcysteine to people with higher levels? So should we use the blood paracetamol concentration to guide how much acetylcysteine you get? Because intuitively you would think you would, but at the moment we don't do that. We just give everybody the same. Yeah, that'll be very interesting. And I think probably those things will be something that listeners will look forward to hearing and looking out for as the developments progress. You've mentioned Talkspace already, which is a fantastic resource. And if people haven't heard of it or utilised it, I would definitely recommend it. Where else are good sources of information if our listeners want to look and read further on this subject? Yeah, I mean, Toxbase, as you say, is the UK national guidelines. In terms of toxicology, a blog that I really like is called The Tox and the Hound, which always gives very good coverage of not just paracetamol, but all kinds of different poisonings. So I'd recommend that readers look there as well. And, you know, Talkspace in the UK, you can get on an app. So I'd encourage the listeners to download the app. It's on Android and it's on Apple Store. And if they've got an NHS email, they'll get the whole app for free. And then you've got the whole of Talkspace on your on your phone. And the Tox and the Hound is a blog that has a lot of very good posts about all manners of poisoning. Would be a good point to start. Excellent. I'm sure we can link those into the show notes at the end of the podcast. Well, Professor Dear, thank you so much for chatting through that. I found it really useful and I'm sure our listeners will do too. So unless you have anything else that you feel needs to be known to the listeners, I think that's probably quite a good place to wrap it up. And all I can say is thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you very much, Helen. It was very good fun.